When I think about some of my favorite actors, Tom Hanks is certainly in the top five. He's a good actor. He's been in some great movies. And one of the movies that comes to mind, one of my favorites that he's in, is also one that he's received a lot of awards for. Think of, uh, he won a Golden Globe. He was nominated for an Academy Award castaway. Any castaway fans out there? A couple of you. Well, we don't do this often, but we're going to start with the final scene of the movie Castaway. Check it out. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what Tom Hanks is feeling in that moment. He had been the sole survivor of a plane crash, left for dead on an abandoned desert island, and he somehow found a way to survive for years and years. Nobody even knew he was alive. And then when he creates uh, some sort of a, a boat to find a, a boat that rescues him, he's uh, celebrated as this survivor. But when he comes back after years, you know what happened. His girlfriend, fiance, had moved on. She thought he died. And she's married to another man. Can you imagine what it would be like coming back? Everyone thinks that you're dead. Probably wouldn't be that glamorous. So when he finds himself at the fork in the road in the middle of nowhere, he's not just asking a question, where should I go? He's not simply asking about his direction. He's asking a deeper question. Why am I here? Why didn't I die on the island? What is my purpose? That's what he was asking. It's interesting. That's actually the question that Solomon has been asking for the last 12 chapters in our study on Ecclesiastes. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Solomon is asking the same question. And after addressing big issues of life and giant questions of morality, after probing question, after probing question about life and death and pleasure and money and the problem of evil and addiction to work, it's interesting that he finishes right where he began. Listen to Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, verse 2. That's how he started the whole book. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then as I turn to the end of the book, 12 verse 8, Solomon says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Meaningless. Hevel. Come on, Solomon. How encouraging is that? After 12 chapters on wisdom and the meaning of life, you come right back to the same thing. You come right back to where you started. Life is pointless. It's meaningless. It's not what I'd call encouraging. And if we're honest, it's probably a, a question that we've asked. If, if life is meaningless, then what's the point? Why am I here? If we can't find meaning in work and pleasure and education or relationships, then why keep on going? If we're all just going to die anyway, then why live? If life is going to be unfair then why try to live a life of justice? If the wicked people are going to prosper, then why try to be righteous? If wisdom has limitations, then why try to live a wise life? Now, certainly those are questions that aren't just directed at King Solomon. They're directed at God, our creator. If life is meaningless, then God, what's my purpose? Maybe that's a question that you're asking tonight. Maybe you find yourself at a metaphorical fork in the road. You don't really know which way to turn. And you're not just asking about, God, where do you want me to go? You're asking, God, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Those aren't bad questions to ask because all of us are, are created with this desire to live a life of meaning, to live a life of purpose, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment in something. 
But then in 12.8, Solomon says, it's all meaningless. Now, thankfully, he doesn't end the book at 12, verse 8. He continues to answer the why question. Since life is meaningless under the sun, here's how we need to respond. Remember our big idea for Ecclesiastes. Life is meaningless under the sun, but we find meaning through the sun. We find meaning through Christ. And if I had to guess, when we think about our purpose, when we think about why we are here, we probably overcomplicate things. We probably tend to ask the wrong questions. And when we ask the wrong questions, we get the wrong answers. But I can't think of a better way to finish our series in Ecclesiastes than how Solomon does in his conclusion of the book. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 12. I'll be reading verses 9 to 14. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Here's what uh, the text says. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there's no end, and of much study there's weariness of the flesh. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. The conclusion begins in verse 9, and it's interesting, the, the tense changes a little bit. It goes from Solomon talking, it almost sounds like a narrator is talking about the preacher in third person. So many have asked, well, who wrote the conclusion to Ecclesiastes? I'm not exactly sure. Solomon could be writing in third person. It wouldn't be uncommon for a biblical writer to do that. We see that in other examples. This also could have been a, a compiler or an editor who put his thanks together at a later date. Either one's possible. I don't think either option reduces the integrity of the text. But the narrator, the person who put this together, possibly it's Solomon. I'll just call him the preacher. Uh, the preacher um, upholds uh, the writer of the book as the one who studied carefully, weighed and taught Proverbs, taking what he learned in academia, filtering it through the lens of a God-centered worldview, and he threw out everything that didn't matter and kept everything that did matter. He commends wisdom. But then in the next verse, in verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. <laughs> it's probably not a word we've heard very often. Um, anybody know what a goad is? Actually, you all know what a goad is. You just call it a different name. By living in Wisconsin, we're familiar with something called cattle prods. That's what a goad is. It was used to help the cows point them in the right direction. Uh, maybe you've never used one before. You probably understand the concept. Um, maybe you have a friend that you'd like to use one with. Don't get any ideas. But think of the point of a cattle prod. It's not comfortable for the cow, is it? But it keeps the cow moving in the right direction. Actually, uh, the farmer is making sure that the cow is, is safe by using the cattle prod. It's the same with the wisdom that comes from a book like Ecclesiastes. The wise sayings from a book like this are not comfortable. When we heard Pastor Adam speak a couple weeks ago, his message was not comfortable. Our text two weeks ago talking about God's judgment. It's not comfortable. Wisdom stinks. But we have a choice. We can encounter a text like this. We can listen to it. We can receive it. It hurts, but it points us in the right direction. It keeps us away from harm. Or we can choose to ignore God's wisdom, and we can be running on a path of destruction and not know any better. So it's important for us to seek after God's wisdom. And I like the second half of the verse. He says, 
The words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they're given by one shepherd. At least in my version, shepherd is capitalized, and appropriately so. It's talking about God, the, the giver of all wisdom. And that shepherd provides wisdom, a picture of nails firmly fixed. When you have a nail that's firmly fixed in a wall, it can hold weight, pounds and pounds of weight for hundreds of years. That's the picture about God's wisdom. The God's wisdom is dependable. It can hold the test of time. It's always relevant. Worldly wisdom is changing as culture changes, but that's not the case with God's wisdom. And I'm amazed at a text like Ecclesiastes, something that was written thousands of years ago that speaks to us today with incredible relevancy and poignancy. It's remarkable. Interesting, in the next verse, he says, verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. Did you know that in 2013, in the United States, there were 275,000 books that were published just in our country? Let's say we were ambitious and we decided we wanted to read one book a day. It would take us 750 years just to read all the books that were published in America in 2013. That's wild. None of us are going to get there. None of us are going to read every book that was ever written. It's, it's literally impossible. Solomon reminds us that of making books, of reading books, there's no end. And if we're looking to academics, if we're looking to books to somehow fill a void in our heart, it's not going to work. Wisdom is a good thing, but wisdom and knowledge has limitation. There's always another book to read. There's always another book to write. But then when he gets to verses 13 and 14, he provides the conclusion to the entire book. It says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What's my purpose in a life of hevel, in a meaningless life? Fear God and keep his commandments. It's that simple. To trust God and to obey God. To fear God and to follow God. And he leaves no doubt. It's the chief duty. It's the whole duty of mankind. Your entire purpose in life falls under that umbrella. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. It sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> We've got to understand what it means to fear God, what it means to obey God. Fear it's often a negative word in our culture today, isn't it? But that's not how it's often used in Scripture. Fear describes a, a reverential awe, a respect, understanding God's greatness, His glory, and His power. I love Proverbs 9, verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Any academic, any intellectual pursuit has to begin with an understanding, a knowledge, a respect of who God is. And the fear of God Understanding his greatness is not just a, a fringe teaching within Scripture. We see it over and over again throughout the Old and New Testament. We can't fear God if we don't understand who he is. We can't fear God if we don't know his character. So tonight, I want each of us to evaluate how we're doing at living out our God-given purpose. So I have two questions, and then I'll finish with the proverb at the end, but two questions that might help us evaluate how we're doing living out the purpose that God has set forth for each of us. So here's our first question to help us evaluate how we're doing. Do you know God for who he is 
or who you want him to be? Do you know God for who he is? Do I know God for who he is or who I want him to be? We can only fear God truly when we understand him rightly. Think of it this way. If you only talk to God when you need something, you have the wrong view of God. You're treating him like a genie in the bottle rather than a friend. If you run away from God after you sin, instead of running toward him, then you view him as a harsh master rather than a loving father. If you can't remember the last time that you confessed your sin, or if you continually tolerate the presence of sin in your life, you might not fully grasp his holiness. If you're content with worshiping idols, then you don't understand his jealousy. If you don't know the last time that you shared the gospel with someone, then you don't have a full view of his wrath. If we're more excited to get to heaven, to see a deceased friend, or to be free from pain than we are to to be with Jesus, then we don't have a full understanding of his splendor and his majesty and his love. If we're not praying for big things or bold things, then our view of God might be too small. If you're using his name in vain or using his name to worship yourself, then you don't understand his greatness and his glory. Fear Reverential awe comes when we understand God's power and his greatness and his majesty and his glory. Do we understand that God literally holds our life in his hand? That he has the power to end our life at any moment? He has the power to vaporize our entire planet at any moment? I think sometimes we give ourselves just a little bit too much credit. And when we think of God's greatness, when we think of his glory, when we think of his majesty, And then we think of ourselves, (laughs) it's a pretty big gap. That the fear of God should remind us of our own depravity, of our own sinfulness, of our own brokenness. That when we think of how great and awesome our creator is, our response should be like the man in the gospels, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. A fear, a, a respect of God's greatness and his power It can't stay with fear. Fear must lead to faith. Not an obscure faith, but a specific faith. A trust that even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that Jesus died for us. A fear of God leads to an understanding that without the work of Christ on our behalf, without the work of Christ applied to our account, then God would be perfectly just to condemn each of us to the lake of fire. Fear of God that doesn't lead to faith, it's not fear. A fear of God that doesn't lead to faith is stupidity. To understand who God is, to understand his power, to understand that he could send any of us to hell at any given moment, yet refusing to trust in Jesus by faith and accepting him as your savior, that's the essence of hell. It's the essence of a meaningless life. Fear helps us understand that we have no hope apart from Christ. And if you're here tonight that you've, and you've never believed in Jesus, you've never trusted in him as your savior, it's the most important decision you can make. And Jesus is the only path to find a life of meaning. More importantly, Jesus is the only path to find an eternity of meaning. A fear of God, a respect, a reverence for him only comes when we understand rightly who he is. 
and we spend time, or we understand God, by spending time with the thing by which he's chosen to reveal himself to us, Scripture. That if we want to know God rightly, we want to know God truly, then we need to be spending time in his word. What's your relationship like with the Bible lately? Casual, consistent, intermittent? How often do you read it? How often do you memorize it? How often are we talking to others about it? One of my issues with Christianity in our culture today is what I'll call the U-version paradox. U-version. It's probably the best Bible app on the planet. If you don't have it, you probably should. It's incredible. It's ad-free. It's a free app. It has just about every translation. It has audio Bibles, but it also has devotional material. And my issue is with the devotional material, not just on U-version but devotional material in general. Let me explain before some of you start throwing things at me. (laughs) Many devotional reading plans on many apps are topical. Five days on anxiety, a study on purity, 10 days about courage, a month on personal discipline. Good things? Yeah, necessary things, needed things. I have nothing against them. However, topical studies, in the words of Pastor Jeff, sometimes can take an issue that the Bible whispers and shout it with a megaphone. It can be disproportionate. But more importantly, topical studies are SAM-based. I'm studying God on my terms. How can I grow in my courage? How can I decrease my anxiety? How can I be pure? How can I stop being fearful? Notice the theme? It's centered on me. I'm convinced one of the greatest problems in American Christianity, frankly, in my life, is that we can have a way too big a view of ourselves and too small of a view of our creator. Topical studies can tend to keep us at the center of our own universe. We focus on fixing ourselves by focusing on ourselves. It's not a good recipe. We need to focus on God and allow him to do the fixing rather than focusing on ourselves. And when we read topical studies, they, they leave out some, some pretty powerful stories. Stories like, uh, I don't know if you've done a topical study, probably didn't include Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where God strikes a husband and a wife tandem dead because of their deceit. Not a happy story. Most topical studies don't include the story of Achan, who stole the devoted things, the things devoted for destruction from Jericho, and he brought death and destruction on an entire nation. We don't naturally pick out texts like the seven woes in Matthew 25, or God's response to the golden calf in Exodus 32. You're probably not going to open up your Bible and start studying Ezekiel. It's hard, and it's filled with wrath. There's one text in Ezekiel that everybody likes, the text about the Valley of Dry Bones. If you haven't heard of it, someday if you walk in Christian circles long enough, someone will make some obscure reference to dry bones becoming alive. We can sing about it in some worship songs. But if that's the only text that you read in Ezekiel, you miss like 50 chapters of God's wrath and destruction against the sin of his people. But then when you read a beautiful text about God keeping his covenant with his people and bringing them back to life, 
the wrath actually makes the text even more beautiful. I'm convinced that the majority of our Bible intake should be exegetical. We should be working through our Bibles systematically. That'll give us the greatest chance of knowing God on his terms, not our own terms. The greatest chance of understanding his character rather than just discovering what the Bible has to say on a couple of issues. So read the Bible systematically. That's a great way to understand God on his terms. Here's another great way to grow in our understanding of God would be to study theology. There's some amazing authors that have written extensively on theology proper, understanding and knowing God in a deeper way. A.W. Tozer, J.I. Packard's Knowing God. You can start with something small like the Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent, or maybe you're ready to purchase one of those big, thick, systematic theology texts like the one by Wayne Grudem called Systematic Theology. That thing is a brick. You could hurt a lot of people with that. But I'm convinced that young adults is ready for something a little deeper than a cheesy devotional or the latest Tim Tebow book, right? We're ready for some meat. We're ready for some theology. So this summer, uh, starting on Thursday, June 9th, right out here at the fire pit, some of our pastors and some of our lay leaders are teaching a, a weekly Bible study on theology, different topic each night. So you could come to one, you could come to all of them, but that would be a great practical way. There's not even any homework. I'm letting you off easy. A great way to grow in your understanding of God and diving into some theology. That's happening this summer on Thursday nights. But in our text, a fear of God is only half of our purpose. The second half is obedience, isn't it? Fear God and keep his commandments, obedience. That's the chief duty of man. That's our purpose. And certainly, those two things are connected, right? That if we fear God, then certainly we're going to obey him. <laughs> that if someone says they fear God, but they're really not walking in obedience, I would question whether or not they fear him in the first place. But the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is quite brilliant. Solomon isn't saying that nothing matters. It's the opposite. He's saying that everything matters because God will bring everything into judgment. That's his last line of the book. Fear God in keeping his commandments. It permeates every aspect, every facet, every crevice of our entire life. Just like our text a couple weeks ago, this should also send a chill down our spine. God, God will judge every aspect of our life. The mantra of Ecclesiastes is opposite of our world. Our world says, fear no one and follow your heart. But instead, God says, fear me and follow my commandments. It's a big difference, isn't it? So when we think about the second aspect, walking in obedience, here's our second question to evaluate our own hearts. Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I walking in obedience? <laughs> the Christian life means that you and I are not our own boss, that we don't get to do what we want to do all the time. We don't have the privilege to follow our desires. We don't have the privilege to follow our hearts. That if you follow your heart 100% of the time, it's going to lead you toward death and destruction. Instead, when we claim Christ, then we subscribe to his ethic, his code, his rules. We don't get to pick and choose which rules we want to follow. We understand obedience. We understand God's rules through scripture by spending time in his word. That's how we learn obedience. But more than just reading it, as James says, we can't just be a hearer of the word. We've got to be a doer of the word. We've got to read it and apply it and allow it to change our life. Again, <laughs> Are we reading scripture? Are we spending time in his word? Are we applying it to our life? Are we walking in obedience? If we were to pick out the 
commands, the ethic that we would find within Scripture, there would be hundreds of commands, rules, expectations that God has laid forth in our lives. And we don't have time to cover all of them tonight, nor would that be very fun. But let's look at the most famous 10, the 10 commandments. Think you can name all 10? Okay, I don't know if I can, but I'm going to try. I have them right here if I can. Have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. I don't get in the right order, but I think that's all 10. Is that right, Jim and Susan? Okay, great. I'm seeing, Susan, I'm seeing you track along there. So I'm like, okay, you were counting. I went out of order at the end. Now, Jesus made him a little harder, didn't he? I mean, he looked at two of them. He looked at don't commit adultery. And he said, well, yeah, but if you uh, lust after someone in your heart, then yeah, that's adultery too. Or he said, yeah, if, if you hate someone in your heart, yeah, that, that's violating the, the murder commandment. So that makes it a little harder. But even if we look at those 10, how are we doing? Are we content with some sin in our life? Are we turning a blind eye to some things that God has been very clear? Don't do that. Or are we doing our best to walk in obedience? Not in a way to earn God's favor, not in a way to to earn salvation or to earn entrance into eternity, but instead as a worshipful response to what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus gave his life for us and we have the opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. It's the least we could do for the one who died on our behalf. the purpose of our life, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Do you want to know why you're here? That's it. That's your purpose. It's that simple. But some of you feel like Tom Hanks in Castaway. You find yourself or you will find yourself at this fork in the road and you just don't know which way to turn. And it certainly feels like fearing God and keeping his commandments has absolutely nothing to do with the big decisions that you're about to make or will make in coming years doesn't seem like fearing God and keeping his commandments tells you which path to take. Over and over again, as I talk to us within our young adult family, I hear questions like this. Which college should I go to? Which job should I take? Should I ask her out? Should I propose to my girlfriend? Should I say yes if he proposes to me? Should I buy this house? Should I move away from Wausau? What is God's plan? What is God's plan? Will. Anybody ask those questions before? I certainly have. And it certainly feels like those questions don't fall even on the same planet as our purpose. Fearing God and keep his commandments, what does that have to do with the big decisions that I'm about to make? Well, I'm convinced that the conclusion of Ecclesiastes has everything to do with those big decisions that you're about to make or will make in the future. But to understand, we've got to have a a little family talk about the will of God and what in the world that means. Because when the Bible uses the phrase God's will, it doesn't use it in the same way every time. There's a couple different types of wills. The first we see in scripture would be God's sovereign will. In this aspect of God's will, what he plans will always come to pass. I think of uh, creation or 
redemption, Jesus' resurrection, the second coming, within God's sovereign will, nothing's getting in the, nothing will get in the way of him accomplishing his plan. Reminds me of John 6, verse 40. This is Jesus talking. It says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. <laughs> now, is there a class of people who look to Jesus, who believe in Jesus, and then aren't raised up on the last day? No. <laughs> it's the will of the Father. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who looks to Jesus, will be resurrected on the last day. Nothing is going to get in the way of God accomplishing that work of redemption in the hearts of those who believe. God's sovereign will. Now, when we're talking about God's plan and his will for our life, we're not talking about a sovereign will. Category two, God's sanctifying will. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain, synonym would be run or, or flee, from sexual immorality. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you run away from sexual immorality. Now, let me ask you, <laughs> do Christians always abstain from sexual immorality? No, we don't. So it can't be God's sovereign will. It's different. It's a different type of will, a different plan, God's sanctifying will. What God desires that doesn't necessarily come to pass. And if we summarize God's sanctifying will in two words, it would be this, our obedience. God's sanctifying will, his plan for you and I, is that we walk in obedience to what he's described, laid out in his word, his sanctifying will. Okay, category three. I think it's actually something we've made up. <laughs> God's secret will. Where should I go to school? What college should I apply to? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I move? God, what's your, your secret plan for my life? A couple thoughts. As I read scripture, I don't actually see anybody asking God to reveal his secret plan for their life. I don't see a concession or a command to do that. The one example I can think of would maybe be Gideon. And Gideon is a bad example. Not a good example. He's a bad example. Instead, when, when individuals are talking to God or, or thinking about their future, I think of Paul over and over again saying, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or that. Or if the Lord allows. I think of James chapter 1, that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. I believe that God has a plan, a special plan, a unique plan for each of your lives. But I don't believe that we have to go on a scavenger hunt to try to find out what it is. But moreover, I think many young adults make a fatal flaw. They take God's secret plan, his secret will for their life. What college should I go to? Who should I marry? And they make that 10 times more important than God's sanctifying plan, our obedience. It's an inversion of importance. Maybe I can explain with a couple examples. I've counseled many young men struggling with pornography. And it's not uncommon in one of our early sessions together to hear a question like, ah, man, who am I going to date? Who am I going to marry? Who's out there for me? They're asking about God's secret plan for their life while they're not really walking in obedience here. It's amazing how many times I've seen that young man 
clean up this area of his life, walk in obedience, walk in victory. And a couple months later, huh, looks like there's a relationship happening. We've got to do things in the right order. Or maybe think of it this way. High school, recent high school graduate, rarely spends time in God's word, never reads the Bible, but is asking God over and over again, where do you want me to go to school? God wants us to read his word. He's asked us to read his word. He's commanded us to read his word. An inversion of importance. First, we've got to focus on what God wants us to do before we ask where he wants us to do it. Or, you know, a college student who (laughs) has been less than ethical in their final exams. I mean, come on, they're online. Everybody's cheating, right? Yeah, not a good excuse. But at the same time, are asking, Lord, I want you to provide the perfect internship for me in the summer or in the fall. Perfect job. Well, they're not really walking in obedience in what God has revealed. It's an inversion of importance. We've got to focus on what God has revealed. We've got to focus on his sanctifying will before we try to figure out the path that God wants us to be on. It's asking the wrong questions. Now, don't hear me wrong. God is not a genie. I'm not suggesting that if we obey God, that if we live according to his sanctifying will, then God is just going to align our life and everything's going to be perfect. No, that's not how it works at all. Instead, before we ask God to show us the path, before we ask God to provide wisdom, we've got to ask an even harder question. Am I being obedient? Is there sin in my heart that needs to be exposed? Am I following God's sanctifying plan for my life? Reminds me of 1 Peter 1.15. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. That sounds a little bit like Ecclesiastes 12, doesn't it? As he who called you is holy, fear God, you also be holy in all your conduct. Keep his commandments. Are we striving for holiness, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be who God desires us to be? So when we're walking obedience, we don't have to fear that we're walking outside of God's will, outside of his plan. I think sometimes we have too high of a view of ourselves. We think, oh man, if I choose the wrong college, then man, I'm going to mess up God's entire plan for my life. <laughs> I actually don't think that's how it works. If God wants something to happen, it'll happen. We can trust that the Lord will reveal his plan to us in his timing. Until then, we've got to walk in obedience. Here's a quote from a pastor I respect. It says this, we can stop pleading with God to show us the future and start living and obeying like we're confident that he holds the future. Hmm. For me, when I, liberate, when I realized this liberating truth, it was like a giant weight that fell off my shoulders. <laughs> Instead of walking on eggshells, fearful that I might mess up God's plan, I simply needed to be obedient to what God had revealed in his word. When we're always focused on the next thing, when we're always focused on what's going to happen next summer or next year or next decade, then we're going to miss out on the ways that God wants to use us today. When we're so focused on the destination, we miss the opportunities that the Lord has put in our path between here and the finish line. So here's my proverb for you tonight. This is not Bible. This is from me. So take it with a grain of salt. It's not inspired, but I believe it's true. God cares more about who you are than where you are. God cares more about who you are than where you are. Maybe an example will help. High school grad, 
can't decide if she wants to go to Eau Claire or La Crosse. They're both good schools. We have alum of both schools, students of both schools here tonight. Can't decide. Is pleading with the Lord and, and wants to figure out which place to go. Now, unless God has appeared to her in a dream and said, thou shalt go to lacrosse. <laughs> Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Now, I can think of one individual that happened to you in Scripture, right? Our buddy named Jonah. Go to Nineveh. And then where did Jonah go? Well, like 3,000 miles in the other direction, right? Now, unless God has appeared to you in a dream and said, go to this school, I think we've got to ask a couple questions. Do I fear God? Am I walking in obedience? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, then you get to make a decision. But understand that whatever school you go to, God wants you to live on mission. He wants you to get involved in Campus Crusade. He wants you to get involved in a local church. He wants you to be a light for him inside the classroom and outside the classroom and using your time at college to be a chance to grow in your faith, not weaken in your faith. You can do that at Eau Claire or La Crosse. God cares more about who you are than where you are. What does this have to do with the closing scene of Castaway? Everything. <laughs> because when you come to that fork in the road and you don't know where to go, do I fear God? Am I walking in obedience? Because if we seek the Lord and we feel like the answer to those questions are yes, then I think you get to make a decision without the fear of messing up God's plan for your life. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the key to a life of meaning. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to believe that we're wrapping up uh, what's such a relevant and powerful book uh, tonight. Um, it's simple. Fear you and follow you. But it's not easy all the time. And for each of us, um, may you expose what it looks like for us to take the next step in our walk with you, to take the next step in following you, to being obedient, and to understanding who you are on your terms, not our own. If there's anybody here tonight that just hasn't taken that step to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, yeah, I want to follow him, may tonight be the night when they decide, yes, I am ready to believe in Jesus. It's been a great night, and as we continue dialoguing in our small groups for a little bit, may you guide our conversation in Jesus' name.